Hi, I'm Rick Hess, Director of Education Policy Studies at the American Enterprise Institute. And I'm Pedro Noguera, Dean of the Rossi School of Education at the University of Southern California. Welcome to our podcast, Common Ground, Conversations on Schooling. Rick and I often fall on different sides of some of the big questions facing public education, but today we're gonna to talk through some of the educational issues facing our schools in the search for deeper understanding and sometimes common ground. Today, as Pedro just mentioned, we're gonna really talk about the schools in terms of COVID and the pandemic and the return to school. As we're chatting here, Pedro, in mid-March, the, the Biden administration has just led the charge for a $1.9 trillion American recovery plan, which I think we probably have different takes on. Uh, we've seen new CDC guidance in which they've now said that schools only need three feet of distance between students rather than six. There's questions of how do we help kids get caught up this spring, this summer, and going forward, the role of the unions. And as you have always pushed on me in all of these conversations we have, inequitable access, inequitable opportunity, and what the pandemic has either revealed or aggravated about opportunity in American education. I don't know, where should we start today, man? Well, why don't we start with all this money? Uh, it's a <laughs> lot of money. I feel the money is needed. If you just think about the cost of reopening, a lot of our schools, especially in the urban areas, are old, dilapidated, don't have good ventilation. Opening safely and maintaining social distance at either six or three feet is gonna be a huge challenge. Testing kids, testing staff, it's huge. But then on top of that, we know that many schools have not been well equipped for internet. So the real question to me is not whether or not the money's needed, but how it's going to be spent. Where's the accountability on the use of public funds? Uh, going into infrastructure makes a lot of sense. We have to make sure that it's not being spent for recurring costs because we know that the money's not going to be there forever. Yeah. So I think I'm with you on a good chunk of what you just said and some of it, we'll, we'll see. For folks who haven't followed this stuff, there's about $130 billion in the ARP package for K-12 education, another $40 billion for higher ed. This follows on about $60, $65 billion for K-12 that was done in the various CARES packages during 2020. And then there's several hundred billion for state and local government. So for folks keeping score at home, that's about $200 billion in CARES aid for K-12 between last year and this year. That's about triple what Washington spends on K-12 a year. And honestly, like if more of this money had gone out, say, last summer with the expectation that schools are going to use it to improve HVAC and to make sure that they could get kids back Labor Day, the infrastructure argument would have resonated more for me. Now that we've vaccinated at least the first jab for more than 80 million adults, we're pretty clear on the science about getting kids back to school safely. It doesn't feel like that's necessarily an urgent need. And it feels to me somewhat like we're showering a whole lot of money on districts, whether or not they've demonstrated that they need the kind of infrastructure investments that you've just highlighted. I'm in touch with LA Unified pretty closely, the you know, second largest system in the country. They've fed millions of people <laughs> over the last year because they've been distributing meals to whoever needs them. And the lines are incredible. But as I talked to Austin Butner, who is no um, big spender, you know, he's a, a fiscal conservative himself. He's saying, look, we need just to try to get our buildings ready is going to be a, a really major task. I think there's good reason to be concerned about the use of the money. And my hope is that 
states are providing the oversight and the direction that districts will need because as I think we both agree, many districts don't know how to do this. So for example, we think about the issue of learning loss. What are the best strategies for addressing kids that we know are coming back behind academically? I don't think it's investing a lot in testing. I do think we've got to figure out how do we get those kids re-engaged, make sure they're mental health professionals if need be, and really create an environment where kids are going to be excited about returning to school, keeping in mind that many teachers are burnt out from having been Zooming for the year. Here's where I think your point about the one time in nature of the investment is really important. My understanding, you know, from like the state chiefs I've heard from, is that they're immediately getting a lot of pressure from like, say, teacher groups. Like, good, here's money coming in. You know, we're overdue for a raise. And that's A, not what this money's designed for. And B, if you spend it that way, these folks are going to get to the end of this huge infusion in about 24 months. To the extent that folks can make the case that there are real infrastructure issues that they need to address right now, connectivity, school safety, I get that, I'm with you. I wish the heck there had been some kind of audit on the front end of that, rather than just showering this money out there. But I find those compelling. And then, look, I think we need to think differently about how money gets spent, which is exactly what I hear you saying. Like, we don't need to run summer school necessarily. There's some kids who've been massively disconnected, and I'm not sure just putting them in classrooms for five hours a day this summer is the solution. I think folks need somebody coming out, running diagnostics on where kids are, helping them identify the right learning resources, helping get families what they need. There's parents who don't speak English, who've had trouble with connectivity, even if they have the hardware. We need people to get out, help them set up. I mean, I think there's a lot of these issues embedded that are about a very different kind of set of routines than what school systems are used to doing. And I hope to heck that some of this money gets spent on how do we actually creatively kind of go MacGyver that stuff out and not just do more of what we're used to doing. No, I agree. And one of the areas I think would be a wise investment is in tutoring. There are a lot of kids, they need the direct human contact of a mentor and one teacher with 25, 30 kids is not going to be able to address it for kids who are very far behind. So tutors, well-trained tutors who can work in small groups with kids, I think would be a good investment. But I think there are other ways that the money could be spent well that could have a, a positive impact. Yeah. So you, you brought up, you know, hey, how do we make sure these dollars are spent responsibly in a way that make a difference for kids? How do you think about that challenge? There's got to be guidance, guidance and accountability coming from the states. They can't just say it's up to the districts. We have an experience here in California with what they call the local control funding formula. It's an equity-based funding plan and districts are given money. If you have more high-need kids, you get more money. And what we've seen from the research is some districts are real clear about how to use it and many are not. And sometimes it's spent in very questionable manner. So, you know, I'm all for local control but it needs to come with guidance and it needs to come with accountability. Yeah. And this is partly like where I get frustrated and I get stuck because I think student outcomes are an important part of this, but I worry about the ways we test and whether they actually are going to pick up the things we care about here. And if it's not about student outcomes, then it starts to get about filing paperwork with the state or it starts to become folks who work in a state education agency starting to second guess and micromanage. So I don't want to spend $130 billion just sprinkling it on schools. Um, but at the same time, I don't really want to create new levels of bureaucracy for folks trying to do this stuff in the field. I wish the hell I had a better answer. <laughs> <laughs>
Yeah. One of my um, faculty in, uh, from USC, Morgan Powerkoff, just wrote an op-ed in the LA Times today about this, about the need for this guidance, and particularly around the issue of learning loss. I get worried that uh, if we say we're going to assess the kids in the spring, that some district's going to say, okay, we're going to use our invested test preparation to make sure that our kids are ready for these standardized tests. That to me is not a wise use of resources. And what we've seen already is in many communities, people are not flocking back to the schools right away. They're reluctant. And I don't think that just telling them, come back so we can test you is going to be a great invitation to welcome them back. I think we're going to have to be much more creative in the way we approach this. We're going to have to put a lot more emphasis on addressing the the social and emotional needs of kids simultaneously with addressing the academic needs. And I think we're going to have to continue to to rely on some forms of virtual learning. I think one of the things that's come out of this pandemic is we've seen that for certain kids, this can really be a benefit. And we need to get clearer on when is it a benefit and when is it really exacerbating some of the problems we've already seen. So then this gets to this whole question of how do we actually do social emotional learning, like A, in effective ways, and again, how do we make sure that this stuff is having the desired impact for kids? You know, so much of this stuff keeps taking us back to assessment, right? Because assessment is how do we know at the end of the day whether we've accomplished what we want to accomplish, which makes the fact that what we have is like these federally mandated reading and math tests and that the conversation is do we give them or don't give them suggests kind of how empty our toolbox is. What we'd really like to have is a whole bunch of different wrenches and hammers and pliers and and we've got like one hammer. And the question is, do you swing it or not? No, I think that that speaks to the bigger problem we've talked about in the book, the way we use assessment. And if we think of it as a tool, then we would be much more creative. And the fact is that the law, ESSA, allows for a more creative approach. But I think we both know that many states have not explored how to do that. So again, if it's not happening at the district or school level, it may not be happening at all. And I think that's a shame because it's a lost opportunity. Let's talk a little bit about the CDC guidance here, Pedro. Like we talk a lot in education. One of the big themes over the last year was who believes in the science. Sometimes feels to me like once faith in science depends a lot on whether one likes the recommendations of the scientists at that moment. What do you make of both kind of the role the CDC is playing here and kind of the new guidance that's issued regarding school reopening? I like to believe it's science, but then I think the rationale for going from six feet to three feet was not that clear and compelling. Now, I have heard studies showing that schools that have gone to three feet are showing there is no spread. So I believe in that. But they just have to be careful about these mixed signals. We're seeing the same thing right now with the vaccine itself. Some evidence that maybe the British vaccine may have picked and chose its own studies. (laughs) So I, I think we need reliable data that we can point to so that as we reopen, We know what we're doing, and we can assure the public that they're not risking their children's health or the teachers, that they're not putting themselves at risk, so we can do this safely. I was struck, though, for instance, our our friend Randy Weingarten had been thundering all last year about what we need to do is listen to the CDC and respect the experts and let them do their job. So the CDC and Walensky, it's interesting, the new director of the CDC, when she was at Harvard last year, and the Newton School Board reached out to her and asked, and she said, oh, three feet's fine. That was like her advice back then. That's what the CDC suggests the research shows. And now suddenly 
Randy is saying, well, you know, we think the CDC is behaving precipitously and we don't trust the evidence. And I'm like, well, wait a minute. Let's just be consistent here. If you're not going to trust the CDC when it's inconvenient, then don't berate everybody else last year for being skeptical of CDC guidance. If you're going to tell us that the CDC are the authorities here and we need to trust them with the professional acumen, then let's do that even when it's organizationally inconvenient. But, you know, I, I'm, I'm of two thoughts on this because um, I know lots of people, well-educated people who are COVID paranoid in their personal lives. They haven't touched their mother in a year. And I try to tell them, you know, I have a, a nephew, he's a physical therapist. He's been treating patients for the entire time with his mask on, with PPE, and his patients have not worn masks for six months. No one in his office has contracted COVID, not one. So it's clear PPE works, <laughs> but the paranoia has a life of its own. And you can tell people you can't catch it just by walking outside. And I know people who don't walk outside because they're afraid. So fear has a life of its own, too. No, and that, that's actually a fair point. It's interesting. You know, a bunch of pediatricians, for instance, in California issued something in the last couple of days. But what they pointed out is what the science has been abundantly clear about is that at least for kids, this stuff is a minimal risk. That more kids are going to pass away from flu in California this year than from COVID. That the suicide risk dwarfs any of this stuff. And again, you know, the fear thing's a real thing. The fact that kids, even if they're not at risk, they could bring it home to vulnerable parents or grandparents. These are fair considerations. And I certainly want us to take them seriously. But part of when I hear people talk about how we need to respect the science is we're trying to make responsible, mature judgments where there's no perfect solution. And it seems to me, for instance, that AFT's job here is now that the CDC has weighed in, said three feet is reasonable, I would love to see the AFT out educating parents and saying, hey, here's what the nation's leading authorities, named by a Democratic president, with Democrats controlling the House and the Senate, spending a lot of money to help act on this guidance. Instead, we look at Chicago, for instance, where after, I think, a year of efforts to ramp up the fear, even as the schools are open, only about 20% of parents, I think, are choosing to send their kids back to school. Parents have the right to do what they think is best for kids. But I am concerned that part of what's going on is that parents have been scared in a way that's unrelated to the actual underlying risk factor. Yeah, no, I agree. I think we have to make a distinction between official responsibility of the government and of large organizations like unions and their positions versus individual decisions. And I think that's an important distinction. But on that point, because if you're going to pick on the AFT, what about the governor of Florida who said, come on, spring breakers, come on down to Florida. We're wide open. And look what they got this weekend. Talk about a super spreader weekend uh, down there. Or the Texas governor saying, we're not going to wear masks anymore or, or they're optional. This is not responsible behavior either. So I think there's lots of fingers to be pointed at the inconsistencies in how we're addressing this. Yeah, and I think that's fair. And DeSantis is interesting because I've actually been a huge admirer of him for most of this. I think he's taken a lot of cheap shots in the national press. Andrew Cuomo was the good guy. And DeSantis, and like, I'm like, oh, wait a minute, guys. I think that narrative needs to be revisited. But your point is so spot on. So he says, come on down. And people come on down. And now they have to have an eight o'clock curfew and shut down the causeways and it's one thing to say Florida's open for business, 
It's another thing to say we want lots of reckless, irresponsible college kids to come. I think it's right to point that out with like DeSantis and Abbott, but I think the media has done a pretty good job of holding their feet to the fire. I'd like to see, say, union leaders in a place like Chicago, I'd like to see a better job holding their feet to the fire when I think they have worked their darndest to scare parents to the point where parents are having trouble getting good information to make good decisions about what's in their kid's best interest. Because I don't think 80% of Chicago's children are best served in terms of their interests or their family's health by having them 100% remote at this point in time. One of the tragedies of this is the kids who have suffered the most from the learning loss, from the pandemic, from the economic hardship are also the least likely to be able to go back to school. And that is, you know, to speak to the point of the inequities of the situation, it's exacerbating many of the problems. If you think about who in the system are parents most likely to trust, I would say it's the teachers and the kids. And the teacher was saying, look, it's safe to come back. What we would see is gradually more and more parents sending the kids back to school. So I do think the unions have a role to play in working with their members and saying, look, we're going to follow the guidance of the CDC. And it's saying under these conditions, it's safe to reopen. And let's do that. Especially, again, under Trump, it was easy for them to say, look, Washington's being reckless. And now you've got a president that they enthusiastically supported, who has made it clear that their opinions are deeply valued, who has just pushed through an enormous aid package to help do the measures that they think are important. I'm disappointed, to say the least. But let's stay with this inequity point that you've made. Help us think a bit about when you look at what has been revealed or played out, what, what stands out for you? It starts with the lack of internet access. I saw one study, 30% of kids in LA could not even participate in virtual learning because either they didn't have devices or they didn't have internet connection or both. That's a lot of kids. That's well over 100,000 children, not in school, just in LA. Think about the country. Think about the kids in rural areas who don't have access. So this is a huge problem. The new recovery bill, is going to hopefully address the infrastructure of internet connections, which you would think we should be a leader on this in the world, and we're not. We are far behind many other countries in terms of giving people access to the internet, which increasingly is a basic need, just like water and light. I hope that coming out of this, we're going to see access go up a lot more than it has been. If kids were getting to school and getting their education, and then suddenly they're entirely dependent on remote learning, you have created in some sense a new kind of inequity, which before wasn't as significant or prevalent. So it just strikes me that we, you know, you and I have talked about this before, that when you get pragmatic and practical, some of these things become less sweeping and less ideological. It seems to me that when we think about the inequities produced by remote learning, that sometimes we talk about them as if they're just the same inequities that we had in February 2020, just highlighted. But I think actually there's differences which could be an opportunity to do really good things for a lot of kids, but we have to kind of see those in order to be able to tackle them. Absolutely. And you know, and then there's the embedded inequity that both you and I know from a personal standpoint. If you're a parent who has a college education and time, your kids got a lot more right? Because you could sit with them on Zoom, you could reinforce it with reading or other activities at home. Think about all the kids whose parents were either too busy working, out of the homes because they're essential. They were just left on their own. I know many teachers who talked about kids. They knew 
They might have Zoom on, but they can't see their picture. They don't know what the kid is doing. They don't know if the kid's listening. They don't know if the kid's participating. We've seen that across the country uh, because the parents don't have the time and the ability to provide that support. Again, we knew that before was a problem. It was an even bigger problem during the pandemic. You know, and to bring it back to both kind of the political piece and union piece we touched on before, I mean, you're, you're exactly right. Teachers who were complaining about the burdens on them, but there were all these people who had to go out of the house and do these jobs through this all. There were healthcare workers and cops and folks who were getting our food to us. And like their kids were on their own, especially in single parent households. And yet, when we talk about the urgency of getting schools open so that these kids weren't left to their own devices, we know that frequently it, it was the heaviest union school districts, which you would think would be more attuned to these things, which would be more concerned, which actually were least likely to have their doors open to be getting those kids back into learning environments. Yeah, I have to agree. There was a very powerful letter written by a, a nurse in New York to teachers. So I risked my life <laughs> to take care of people. You can take a chance to go back to school. And this is a, a nurse who was also a parent whose kids are unsupervised because she's caring for patients in the hospital. One of the things I've really admired about Biden so far, he has demonstrated great compassion and empathy as a president for the suffering in the country. And I think this is an issue where we've got to call on people to also sacrifice. There is a sacrifice, there is a risk, and no one should put their health and their lives at risk unnecessarily, but we all have to chip in to support each other, support our kids and get through this. So hopefully that message resonates too. We covered a lot of ground here. I think there's a lot more we could cover, but uh, <laughs> I think we might have to uh, put a thumbtack in that and uh, get back to some of these issues uh, later on. Any last words, pal? No, just that I think that when we move past ideology to talk about the pragmatic and the practical issues, we can find common ground. The two of us have much more to say, but we're out of time for today. If you're interested in hearing more, check out our book, A Search for Common Ground, conversations about the toughest questions in K-12 education. Thanks for listening to Common Ground, conversations on schooling. And thanks to our producers, Tracy Shera and Olivia Shaw. You can subscribe to Common Ground on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you like what you hear, consider leaving us a review. And feel free to let us know what topics you'd like to see us discuss by sending an email to podcast at ADI.org. Thanks for joining. Until next time.